Right, uh, good afternoon uh, uh, to all that joined this webinar this afternoon. I'm Francis Peterson. I'm the Rector and Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Free State. And I want to welcome you to the 2021 University of the Free State Thought Leadership webinar series. Um, uh, I would like to just indicate that as a public higher education institution in South Africa, with a responsibility to contribute to public discourse. The University of the Free State is presenting the fourth webinar in its thought leadership series for 2021 uh, as part of the Free State Literature Festival online initiative called Freisprag Digital. Now, the, the webinar series effectively started in 2018, uh, and the aim of the thought leadership series is to discuss issues facing South Africa by engaging with experts at the University of the Free State and also in conversation and debate uh, with others uh, in South Africa, but also outside of South Africa. So far, topics for 2021 included uh, the reimagining of the universities for student success. We also had a seminar or webinar series focusing on corruption in South Africa, uh, the endemic pandemic. And then uh, we recently had a, a webinar series that focused on South African politics and the local government elections. Today's uh, webinar and discussion touches on the, the recent unrest that we have seen in two of our provinces, KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, and how the country will recover from that. Now, obviously, there's a lot of others that has also happened recently. I think that we, uh, we had a message yesterday and the day before yesterday that uh, security is on high alert for potential more disruptions uh, um, and more protests. The question that we want to ask is, is South Africa falling apart and where to from here? And that is the question that the panel will debate this afternoon. So what South Africa will look like after the recent unrest in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng is yet unknown. So as the country, is attempting to normalize while telling the human political and economic cost of the riots. What we know for sure is that the events of the past month have dispelled the impression of South Africa as exceptional with a triumphant future. Moreover, the inconsistent response from government during and also after the unrest laid bare the divisions within the ruling party. So as South Africans are reeling from the aftermath of the looting, a lackluster response from the leaders with unreliable, sometimes conflicting messages has brought little comfort to those most in need. So the question is what happens now? What will it take for South Africans to advance a cohesive vision to provide a sustainable future for the next generation. And I would like to say that we've got an esteemed panel here this afternoon that will help us to, to work through uh, these sort of questions. Uh, and, I'm, and I can imagine, and I, will, I wanted to say that we're looking forward to a thought-provoking discussion. So we, on the panelists, and I'm gonna ask the panel, uh, perhaps uh, the panelists as I, I, I call their name, just to switch on the camera so people could see that, uh, could see them. Uh, the first one, the first panelist is Ms. Juanita Hunter. 
And uh, um, Juanita is an award-winning political author and also journalist. She's the political editor of News 24 and author of Balance of Power, Ramaphosa and the Future of South Africa. And Ms. Hunter has won several awards for her work. Uh, she's currently a master's student at the University of the Witwatersrand, and uh, she has reported fearlessly on state capture, the Zuma years, and the political transition thereafter. So welcome to you, Juanita. Our second uh, panelist is Professor Bunang Moale. And uh, uh, Bunang is, is, is obviously close to the university, he's chancellor of the university. Um, most of you would probably uh, know or have, have known him as uh, the role that he's plays in business leadership South Africa. But he's a professor of practice at the university, university of Johannesburg Business School, uh, uh, College of Business and Economics, and he's also chairman of the Bitvest Group Limited. He's published, he's a published author, I would say, and a respected business leader who, who has held chairmanships and directorships in some of South African's top companies. And I'm not even gonna gonna list him. Uh, but the most important role in uh, for us is that he is. Uh, he is the Chancellor of the University of the Free State. So welcome to you as well, Bunang. Our third panelist is uh, uh, Nakiwe Bakitsha. Uh, Nakiwe is a former journalist who has been at the forefront of major national and international developments uh, in a news and current affairs broadcasting career spanning 20 years. She's a Fulbright a Herbert Humphrey Fellow. She holds an, a master's uh, in journalism and media studies from WITS, an MSc degree in African studies from the University of Oxford, and she serves as a trustee on the board of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, uh, and is also a member of the Deloitte Global Advisory Council. Welcome to you, Nakiwe, and I know that your contribution is also going to be uh, immensely valuable. And our last panelist is uh, Professor Anthony Turton, uh, and we're also proud that, that Anthony is an affiliated professor in uh, our Center of Environmental Management here at the University of the Free State. He specializes in strategic planning, transboundary water resource management, uh, policy and institutional issues, conflict resolution and political risk assessment. Uh, and, uh, and, and that, that political risk assessment is also linked to large infrastructural projects. Uh, we, have, we have seen uh, uh, Professor Turton commenting on various of these uh, uh, challenges that we had the last couple of, 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 of weeks uh, to the month. And, uh, and we're also looking forward, Anthony, to your contribution. So, so this is uh, our panelists, and we're gonna start off uh, by giving each of them uh, 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 sort of 10 minutes of presentation where they will talk to us on their particular, uh, from their particular angle uh, on the challenge that I've just uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, and then after uh, their presentations, we will go into a Q&A. There are in the chat box an opportunity for you to, uh, to phrase your questions at the audience. Uh, there is also an opportunity for our panelists if there are particular questions that are specified or where they are specified to respond to that they can respond to in the chat box. So we will see, we will also see that during the course of the discussion. Uh, but I will at the end 
um, when we get to Q&A, question and answering time, uh, uh, um, we'll, we'll take those questions and we'll phrase it in a way, because some of the questions might overlap, we'll phrase it to particular uh, panelists uh, to, uh, to talk to. So um, without further ado, I'm gonna ask uh, Ms. Juanita Hunter uh, to start off and, and give her 10 minute presentation. Juanita, over to you and welcome you. again. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Peterson. Thank you to Professor, my esteemed panelists, Professor Mohale, uh, Nikiwe Bikicha and Professor uh, Berger. Thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity. Um, it's, it's always a pleasure having these engagements and, and it's a, a little bit of a, a tough ask to go first considering the, the lineup uh, that, that comes um, behind me. But nonetheless, um, let, me, let me get into it. There was in July uh, something that I don't think South Africans in uh, post-apartheid South Africa ever considered would happen. The, nation of the protection of our state uh, was shook to its core. And this was done through many things. And the first of it was um, what I will argue was a thread of lawlessness perpetuated by a former statesman. And I will argue that this has been, you know, going on for well over two decades. The other part uh, uh, and stream that I'm going to be looking at is the security cluster and the safety of the state. And then the third uh, stream is, you know, is our politics working? Now, for the last two decades, former President Jacob Zuma has flirted with defiance of the rule of law. And he's done this in many ways. Essentially, the irony of Jacob Zuma is that the same uh, democracy that he fought for and went to jail for uh, in apartheid is the, he is now in defiance of, and he has created this perception that he that the law should not apply to him as it does to everyone else. He's created this narrative that he is this broad victim of this uh, criminal justice system of the law and has skirted accountability uh, on every front. Now, during his tenure, he obviously was able to uh, be, you know, be part of the state capture project in, in, in an attempt to shield himself. But since he's, he's um, left office, obviously he no longer holds uh, the strings to the state and now accountability is catching up with him. So the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture begins, and obviously we have to know that he has been opposed to that commission. He's also um, uh, effectively denied the existence of state capture. And he was made to answer questions before this commission. The first time he appeared before it, he obfuscated, he played the victim, he perpetuated untruths, and then, he absconded from the commission, played sick, and eventually there was a summons for him to appear. We remember that last year he appeared before the commission, but then absconded, walked away without any answer. And that's when his brazen um, defiance of the Zonda Commission, the Constitutional Court, and the rule of law began. Or rather, I should say, 
is intensified. It was very clear from that time in late 2020 that Jacob Zuma is completely in defiance of the Constitutional Court and nothing is going to make him uh, change his mind. Again, this was not something new. He was always in defiance of the rule of law and this was just simply perpetuated. So politically what happened was there were signs of mobilizing around radical economic transformation forces, um, you know, a subdivision, sub-fringe group, if you like, in the ANC of people who had uh, hedged their bets at the Nazareth conference and lost. There was mobilization of so-called MKMVA. There was mobilizing of different pockets of criminal elements in KwaZulu-Natal. And as things continued in the first half of 2021, it was very clear that effectively the Constitutional Court will have to make some sort of finding against Jacob Zuma and that he was mobilizing for a response. He used fear tactics, he threatened, in fact, the Constitutional Court. And then we got to the point where in the 20, at the end of, of June 2021, Justice Sisi Kampepe delivered that very, very stunning judgment where, he's, where, he, where she said that the former president was guilty of contempt of court by not uh, adhering to a previous Constitutional Court judgment that said uh, that he needs to appear and cooperate with the Zondo Commission of Inquiry, and they sentenced him to 15 months in prison. Now that's where everything began, right? That's the politics behind it. But then what we saw, we saw defiance again of the rule of law, but effectively Jacob Zuma went to jail um, on the evening of the 7th of July, 2021, where he was incarcerated at the escort correctional facilities. Now, this is a man who never ever believed that he would go to prison, never ever believed, although he multiple times, you know, claimed that he was not afraid of prison um, and made a mockery of the criminal justice system by uh, likening it to um, the apartheid uh, system. Now, what happened uh, subsequent to Jacob Zuma's uh, incarceration was a classic sense of taking advantage of the fault lines in society. So yes, what started off as protest in defiance against the jail sentence of former President Jacob Zuma morphed into something completely different. It, it was no longer about Jacob Zuma and it became criminals taking full advantage of a situation where the state and the authority of the state was on the back foot. Now, was it orchestrated? Was there a central command? Yes and no. The first of it is that we have to understand that the genesis of this unrest was an agency internal fracture that spilled over into the state. There were people in the ANC that interpreted the judgment of the Constitutional Court and the subsequent jailing of former President Jacob Zuma as an effort by President Cyril Ramaphosa to hit at Zuma and his supporters. They believed 
that if Cyril Ramaphosa really wanted to, he could have undone this. And he could have just pulled the plug on Zuma's jailing. Obviously, in a country where the rule of law uh, is imminent, that can't, uh, uh, um, uh, it, it can't happen. So on one hand, you had the orchestration of people, of supporters, people using ANC networks, the rogue MKMVA, which have now been disbanded, people who don't look old enough to have been to have fought in the in the um, anti-apartheid struggle coming together. But on the other hand, they used legitimate protest and instigated you know, communities who had longstanding issues around, around um, service delivery, for example, or electricity or housing, or for example, the truckers um, who, had, who had previously have, had, 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 you know, been protesting violently. So it was the culmination of, of criminality and uh, broken politics. And so what you saw was the orchestrators of this unrest taking advantage of the front lines of society. And the irony of it is that they presided, Jacob Zuma presided over these very same front lines of society, and then now come out to weaponize it uh, um, for his own uh, interest. Now, what we saw was looting. I don't have to go into detail. I know I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time, Professor Peterson. But but um, just to say that they, the the looting continued, and and um, you know there was destruction. Three hundred and fifty people or so dead. We haven't seen this level of of unrest in South Africa. Now, the question was, will we recover and how? And this is where I take a more optimistic approach, despite the fact that as a journalist, as a political editor, you see the ugly belly and we really saw the ugly belly of politics in South Africa. I take the optimistic route where I say that the perpetrators of this unrest, the instigators, the orchestrators did not believe that South Africans were actually as committed to the success of South Africa as we were. That's why, yes, it was eight days of chaos. Yes, it was 50 billion rand of destruction. Yes, it was thousands of jobs and 350 people dead. But at the end of the day, it could have been far worse. And it was the resilience of South Africa to get up, to be mend and to continue that I think shock the criminal nexus around Jacob Zuma and the people who took advantage of this unrest and instigated it to the point where I think that it proved a very important um, uh, point, this unrest, which is what? Number one, South Africans are committed to South Africa. Number two, the fault lines in society that the ANC presided over for the last 30 years, they had weaponized the racial, uh, uh, the racial tension that exists in KwaZulu-Natal apartheid spatial planning, the list goes on. Now, the third point is, we have to move on beyond leading, looking for um, organized politics as the way to, um, you know, for the future of South Africa. And, and I say this, having looked at, at, at how communities got together during the unrest to rebuild what we saw in terms of cleanup operations and the reality of it is that politicians in South Africa have squandered the goodwill that, um, that, that we had. 
and and the reality of it is we did not uh, uh, we did not uh, sort of um, realize how willing people are within the ruling party to burn the house down um, with all of us inside in their own in their own fight. And lastly, Professor Peterson, just to make the point that an important important notice of this um, unrest is the failures within the security cluster, which I cannot undermine the importance of. The security cluster was broken before this unrest began, whether you could say politically, whether in terms of funding and in terms of just um, securocrats being completely uh, uh, sort of uh, broken in the sense that uh, 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 as a legacy rather of, of, of state capture. And so one cannot look at this unrest without looking um, at it as a legacy of the nine wasted years in that Jacob Zuma very systematically and his cronies obviously broke the, the security cluster in an effort for it to serve him alone. And what we saw during the unrest in July was a continuation of this. There was one point that I wanted to make around where to from now, but we'll definitely get to it in the questions. But just to say in the, in the last stream, uh, Professor Peterson, is that what happened in July was the clash of politics, the clash of people taking advantage of the broken political system. It was also um, taking advantage of the fault lines in society. It was criminality at play and it was a failure of the state to maintain the safety and uh, of citizens and its own authority. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kunita. I think that gave us a very good setting. Uh, um, and certainly we will come back to that question, where from here? Uh, um, but thank you very much for, 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 for addressing those points that you did in your presentation. I'm gonna move straight to our next presenter, which is uh, Professor Bunang Mohale. Uh, and Bunang, uh, over to you. Professor Peterson, thank you very much. So let me put a little bit of flesh um, on what Kwanita has so eloquently elucidated. So for me, it is an intersectionality between and amongst a number of things. So first, there was a piece around ethno-tribalism. This is the first time in the history of South Africa that we saw a sitting president printing t-shirts and emblazoned um, across the chest that said 100% a Zulu boy during his rape trial. Secondly, of course, there was also rampant criminality, which accounted, in my view, for about 90% of the looting that I saw. Thirdly, I think there's also genuine desperation by ordinary South Africans. So the two weeks in July left all of us collectively, individually, and severally traumatized. These are the pictures that we normally saw to the north of the Limpopo River that we saw on television. But to actually be a part of it and be further emaciated by the fact that the security cluster and the intelligence services 
that is constitutionally mandated to protect us stood by absolutely helplessly. For me, we have always understood that the South African police service has chosen to have a small SAPS that is nonetheless intelligence led. But instead of investing in intelligence, that money was stolen. It was looted for internecine vote buying within the ANC itself. Therefore, the kernel, the root cause of what we saw in the two weeks in July is indeed the ANC that made a conscious, purposeful, deliberate, intentional decision that they were prepared to bring the entire house down just to settle their factions with absolutely no regard for the future, the success, and the continuity of this country. I agree with Juanita that this has been long in coming. We speak of the monumental failure of our intelligence services, but nobody needed intelligence. When you're about to jail the commander in chief who also happened to be the head of the military intelligence and security intelligence in exile, you knew that there would be some reactions and we were caught flat-footed because we just didn't anticipate that it was going to happen. There is definitely no longer capacity in the SAPS and in the security cluster to understand, to process the intelligence, to be able to anticipate and then plan and then get us into a state of readiness. How did it manifest? I mean, all of us must have witnessed it, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, that it's not unusual for you to call the SAPS and the response will be, we don't have enough cars to respond. Therefore, they didn't have enough cars to cover the looting. They didn't have enough bulletproof vests. They didn't have enough rubber bullets. They didn't have enough tear gas canisters. In fact, they didn't have enough ammunition to deal with us. I think for me, what gives me hope is how the community, especially the ones where the center managers in peace times had gone into those communities to inculcate, to build a close personal intimate relationship with those communities. These are the ones that stood firm and said, we're not going to wake up here tomorrow and have to queue for bread, milk and meat probably three kilometers down the line when we had a mall. But I think before then we had sent a strategic conversation that says it's okay, even though we are committed to the rule of law, that people can get away with absolute daylight murder and daylight robbery. We saw a group called Amadela Ngugubona, which is really disgruntled MKMVA in KwaZulu Natal that have been given cut blanche license by the former president to say, you can't be starving when you can go to mostly to construction companies, state-owned enterprises and state-owned companies to say, we demand equity for free. We saw them issue edicts like, nobody is going to be allowed to bury in KwaZulu Natal unless you are a funeral parlor or an undertaker from KwaZulu Natal. And again, they got away with it. The most brazen for me is when they went 
to Richard Bay Minerals, a Rio Tinto a company where in broad daylight, they assassinated the general manager. And again, up until today, no consequence management and therefore nothing of this notion of final accountability. But I think really to quantify the loss as South Africans, we continue to cut our own face, our own nose to spite our own face, score our own goals, self-inflicted wounds. The economic consequences of the looting probably has taken us 20 years. Juanita is right when she says more than 350 people have died, but 1,480 were destroyed, damaged with 120 million rent that was stolen. 148 schools were damaged. 300 banks and post office outlets were vandalized. 200 shopping centers looted and damaged. 11 warehouses, eight factories, 161 liquor outlets, 3,880 stores that were looted. The economic impact in KwaZulu-Natal alone, and to be absolutely precise, only in Devon was to the order of 1.5 billion. We saw 113 communications infrastructure being significantly damaged. 20 billion was the total cost just in KwaZulu-Natal in those two weeks in July. When you look at KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, we're talking about 50 billion to the national GDP. But for me, I think that part that will stay with us for a long time is the 50,000 informal traders that were also caught up um, in this, the 40,000 businesses that were affected, the 150,000 jobs that are now at risk. Not even the blood bank was spared when people went in to steal the fridges, spilled the blood in the full knowledge that when they leave out of here, they themselves might need the blood O type in case they are shot with a rubber bullet. But of some of the warehouses that were burned, two of them were belonging to pharmaceutical companies that don't only apply and supply KwaZulu-Natal, but the rest of the country with ARV medication, chronic medication of diabetes, not just the vaccines, 47,000 that were stolen. 1.5 million ammunition was also stolen. That's going to find its way in cash in transit heists later on. But Prof, for me, I think this is only one part of an irrefut irrefutable evidence that this state has been failing for a long time. We don't have time, I'll talk a little bit about the transnet cyber attack that lasted longer and the impact is probably 10 times more. But when you combine these two, you see that the people that agitated and orchestrated for this were really going to the backbone of our supply chain, of our value chain. When you stop the N3 and the N2, which is the major artery that brings goods and services from KwaZulu-Natal to Gauteng at 30% of the national GDP, KwaZulu-Natal 16% and Western Cape at 14%, you can see the intention was deliberate. When you go to some of those warehouses, you saw how the first tranche would come in and they would disable 
the fire retarding equipment. They will disassemble the cameras. And whatever they were after, then they would tell the rest of the people to come and loot so that afterwards they could burn. So this was really designed to cause maximum damage. But I think for me, the issue around ordinary citizens being absolutely desperate is almost understandable because there are very few countries that can survive with a major event, one of them. We were in the throes of four and then we just added to the fifth layer. The nine wasted years of state capture in five years, we stole 1.5 trillion South African rents. That's two thirds of what Edward Kisveta collects a year through the South African Revenue Service. In those nine wasted years, we record around 20 billion a year every year was siphoned off by just the two Zupta families. As if that's not enough, we're already in a recession, not technical recession, when our discretionary purchasing power and therefore disposable income was being severely eroded, certainly in the last 10 years. Moody's did not help by joining feature and standards and poor to rate us below investment grade, otherwise colloquially referred to as junk status. As we speak, we are three notches below junk, therefore making the cost of borrowing for government, for businesses, but also for you and I, that much higher at the time that we couldn't afford. Prof, let me end by saying, but even when this pandemic found us, we already prostate phased down and absolutely finished. And we thought we were going to do two instead of three things. First, of course, was to save lives. We got the hospitals ready to got the exigence, the beds, et cetera. But also we wanted to preserve livelihoods because we knew that we we're probably going to kill 10 more people from hunger and starvation because they've lost their jobs than from the virus itself. The third part, which we should have emphasized, I think much more deliberately and purposefully, is how do we break the link between the coronavirus cases and deaths? And the only way you can do that is through a vaccine program rollout. For me, the vaccine rollout was always going to be a race because the country that can say we've defeated the pandemic and therefore have achieved herd immunity will be the one that reaps the global tourism demand. Tourism matters because for us, it accounted for 9.8% of our GDP. 10.2 million people visited our shores during that week of the national lockdown alert level number five. The number plummeted to below 3 million. Thank you, Prof. Thank you very much, uh, Bunang. And as usual, uh, uh, a lot of detail, uh, a lot of specifics, and, and, uh, and really, really insightful. Oh, uh, I just wanted to, to remark to the audience, to the delegates, is uh, please uh, put questions down if there are specifics. I've seen some of the comments made in the chat box, but I would like you to, uh, if there are specific questions as we move along. There are a couple that, um, that just uh, for the panelists so far, that I think is, is, is for us to just think about in, uh, is to, so what, what, what should we be doing going forward? I think that's, that's the, 
uh, that's that's probably some of the key questions that we need to look at. But uh, let me go to our third presenter, uh, Nakuwe Bakitsha. Uh, Nakuwe, uh, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Prof, and thank you so much uh, to the university for the invitation uh, to my behalf, on, on behalf of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And wonderful to be joining this very esteemed panel of thinkers as well. I will seek to respond to a question which was put to us. Will South Africa recover? And if so, what will it take to recover from where we find ourselves currently? I'm going to center my remarks around two particular themes, which I thought might be useful. The first theme draws from an article in the New Frame, which was published on the 4th of June this year. And this is a whole month before the alleged insurrection and looting and protests took place. And the quote from that article, which I found quite striking at the time, is that South Africa is not a viable society for a large proportion of the people who live here. And if history is a reliable guide to the future, something will have to give. My second theme that I will be drawing on this afternoon is a quote um, delivered by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres when he delivered the Nelson Mandela Annual Lecture last year. And he said this, we belong to each other. So I'm going to be speaking to those two things. To that particular quote now from the new frame, South Africa is not a viable society for a large proportion of the people who live here. The question then around South Africa's recovery presupposes that the state South Africa was in before the uprising was an ideal one. And as the new frame suggests, this society has been in disarray for some time. Too many people are destitute, too many people are in despair and live on the margins of society. It's a country that despises, that punishes, that violates and kills women. Some people, a great many, have never, ever worked and probably never will. So the question about recovery to me does not arise. The more appropriate question that we seek to ponder as the new frame enjoins us is this, how do we make this a viable society for the majority? But not simply as a response to what has been described as an orchestrated attacks of political opportunism or criminality, but as a genuine attempt by all South Africans to make this society a viable one for all as envisioned by the constitution. So in the aftermath of the alleged insurrection, many political leaders expressed shock at the developments and they said they were caught unawares. It is surprising to me that they were surprised. Activists, community organizations like Abathali Basim Jondolo have long warned that such a rupture was inevitable given the persistent and widening inequality in our society. Instead, over the years, it's become even more entrenched over time. The intersecting inequalities and abject conditions that people live under are untenable and are glaring for all of us to see. In its considered and thought-provoking editorial, the new frame expresses disquiet in language that is very plain and simple, but I found quite evocative and scary about the unemployment levels, which at the time in June 
were the worst South Africa had ever seen, particularly when you look at youth unemployment. The new frame implored its readers, indeed us broadly as society, to see this moment as seminal, as a profound failure of our society. So then, in order to make the society a viable one for all, what do we do? South Africa needs to act with urgency and determination to interrupt intergenerational cycles of poverty and inequality. People are tired of words, platitudes, and promises. They want decisive action. We're very good, I think, as a country at navel gazing, diagnosing what ails us, but not very good at taking our prescribed medication or agreed, agreeing on the right remedy or dosage for that matter. We have to stop quibbling and we have to act. In the great body of work which has been produced over the years by a great number of academics and institutions in this country and abroad, we already know some of the effective tools and interventions such as social grants, which have been a key lifeline over many years. This has been further evidenced by the COVID-19 relief grant, which too helped avert disaster by keeping people basically from going hungry. In his book, Give a Man a Fish, James Ferguson examined the impact of social grants where he says it's clear that given the structure of South Africa's economy, there are people who may never ever work. I find that frightening. Underscoring the importance and need for an expanded social grant system. In my view, that suggests we must, people, we must meet people where the need is. However, that's not the only solution we should pursue. We can't pursue these solutions in isolation. People want and deserve to thrive and not merely to be kept from salvation. So we need a multi-pronged approach by all actors capable and willing. So how do we support these initiatives? I think it's important that in the multitude of proposed solutions that we challenge ourselves to find areas where we can be most impactful. Part of a research project that the Nelson Mandela Foundation was a part of a few years ago called the Mandela Initiative, um, it looked into the very complex nature of inequality and inequalities in South Africa, and as academics are wont, prepared some recommendations and output. And following on that, we had Thomas Piketty, of course, he, the famed author of the book Capital, which looks, amongst many other things, at intergenerational poverty and inequality with a focus on South Africa as well. Drawing from those two things, we at the foundation identified two areas which we would tackle in an effort to reduce poverty and inequality out of a slew of many other possible areas that we could have focused on. We dedicated our attention to early childhood development, land reform, and more recently, food security, as seen through the Each One Feed One campaign, which we started growing up um, during the pandemic. But for the purposes of this discussion, I'm, I'm going to briefly touch on the two areas of land reform and early childhood development centers. The, the issue of land reform, as I'm sure many of you will agree, is central to realizing a more just and equitable future. The Nelson Mandela Foundation believes that the issue of land reform can be used as a yardstick to measure progress and redress as a country. While much of the focus has been on rural land, there's a need to focus on urban land in the context of urbanization. There is a range of options available to governments, which includes making use of publicly owned land parcels for this purpose. 
government has previously underscored the strategic role that publicly owned land parcels can play in realizing urban land reform and has also made a commitment to expediting efforts to identify and release public land that is suitable for smart and urban settlements. These are the areas in which we are working and looking for solutions which can help us. The second area is on early childhood development centers. Now, as research has shown us over many, many years that if there is an intervention within the first thousand days of a child's life, it can have a dramatic impact on their outcomes later on in life, whether it's nutrition, health, or education. So we are focusing a great deal of our energy on that because it's been shown to directly intervene and interrupt inequality over many years. So our intervention here has been around providing support packages to all identified ECD centers by progressively registering with the Department of Social Development. And of course, this is now transitioning to the Department of Basic Education so that they qualify for the delivery of quality ECD services, including nutrition, health, and safety of children. The package of ECD registration benefits include, amongst other things, access to basic social services, such as access to government subsidies. Because as the Nelson Mandela Initiative said, children who are born to poor parents and grow up in poor households are likely to remain poor, and in this way, the inequalities of apartheid are reproduced. So roughly a million children are born every year. Each cohort of new births is an opportunity for interrupting intergenerational cycles of poverty and inequality. And that's what we wish to see. Finally, the second theme I'm going to speak to, as I said, is we belong to each other. And that's the quote from the UN Secretary General in his address in the Nelson Mandela Annual Lecture last year. Now, he was speaking at the time in response to the moment that the global community found itself in as a result of the pandemic. He called for what he termed a new social contract and new global order. Now, for some years now, the Nelson Mandela Foundation has been grappling with the implications of a democracy which is not working well for the majority of people in society and which, quite frankly, is failing them in fundamental ways. The evidence to us suggests that democracy's social imaginary needs revisiting, renewal, and reimagining. In my own view, I think we have spent way too much time obsessing and essentially captured by the internecine strife within the governing party, its political machinations and factional battles, which are often driven not by ideology, but by self-enrichment and accruing power for its sake and not with the aim to serve. It's a crude politics of power and not principle. We believe that a renewed democracy, one which works for all who live in it, will draw on a recognition of what Judith Butler has termed a social philosophy of living and sustainable bonds. A philosophy which recognizes, prioritizes and nurtures interrelationality and interdependence. These are bonds that we believe find expression in practical ways and at multiple levels. And the example that are led by people on the ground. And the example which I gave earlier about the early childhood develop development centers, the work in which we're doing in that space, for example, prioritizes the voices of the community. It prioritizes the voices of beneficiaries. 
Each role player, civil society, government sees itself as a key stakeholder with the aim of the common good. No one is dictating to anyone how, how things ought to be. And as a result of that approach, that approach from below, from the ground, we're seeing much inroads. So, and that's what I want to, to focus on when we talk about this recovery and what emerges beyond this and making this society a viable one. The voices of ordinary people have to be elevated and prioritized. We think what has been enabled is a space of interdependence. We belong to each other. We do not belong to a political party. We belong to this country. And I think as both Bonang and Juanita have said, an example of that is what we saw, is communities responding and taking ownership of their environments, saying we belong to each other. So that I think should be the center of our democracy as we begin to reimagine it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nakiwe. Uh, um, fantastic, uh, fantastic words uh, and messages that come through. I think you have, have moved us uh, along the, um, the discussion to what we should be doing and what we should be reimagining going forward. But I'll come back to some of the points that you've made. Thank you very much. Our final panelist uh, uh, um, is uh, this afternoon is Prof. Anthony Turton. Anthony, over to you. Good afternoon uh, to you um, and to the listeners. Uh, it's a great pleasure to participate in part of this panel. And I'm going to build on what uh, the previous speakers have done. Uh, and I'm also going to take an optimistic view. Uh, and um, I'm going to try and take the conversation now from those broader drivers now down to some really fundamental specifics that, uh, that are affecting that all of us at the moment. I argue that what has been happening as a framing kind of concept to the uh, to the to the looting, etc., that came to a head in uh, early July in KZN, is the collision of five fun, five drivers. These five drivers are all thundering around in our national economy in our society at the moment, and they all clashed in July of uh, of, of this year. And I'm going to just briefly go through those five drivers because once we understand what the drivers are, we can then start making predictions about the future with, with a relative degree of confidence and start understanding what policy changes we need to start making, et cetera, in order to enable, enable a better future. So I will argue that those five drivers are the following. Number one, state failure. South Africa is a failing state, and, and I, will, I will expand a little bit on state failure just now. Number two, very important thing, close to my heart, uh, resource closure. South Africa is a fundamentally water-constrained economy uh, we became a water-constrained economy in 2002 when we had realized we'd allocated 98% of our national water resource to economic activity, and we only had 2% left to allocate. That then collided with driver number three, climate change. Climate change has fundamentally altered our rainfall patterns in the country to the extent that the water we thought we had uh, uh, in 2002 in that initial national water source strategy number one, we now realize we don't have. We thought we had 53 billion cubic meters of water per annum uh, in the country. We now realize we've only got 48. So that 2% that, that we thought we had actually doesn't exist. So there's a major collision there, and it's a technical issue, and it's being lost in all of the political noise at the moment. But that's a very important thing. And the third fundamental, deeply, profoundly fundamental driver is the relentless marching on towards us of the fiscal cliff. 
The fiscal cliff is going to be the big thing that's going to bite it. Not all these other issues. These are precursors to the big thing to come. The fiscal cliff is going to really upset the apple cart, really put everything on its head. Which brings me to the fifth point. The fifth point has happened over the last two decades. And that has been the systematic marginalization of the private sector and the reduction of the private sector in this, in this, uh, in this developmental state model to one of uh, the sole purpose of which is to, to generate taxes and to, and to uh, be obliged to employ people irrespective of the skills that they have. Uh, stripped of rights, uh, but, 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 but burdened by enormous amount of responsibilities. Um, so these things are all related together. Let me just expand a little bit on what I think uh, uh, state failure is about, because we saw it definitely in July. I argue that a state is not a monolithic entity. A state in the, in the, modern, in the modern world is a very complex structure. Uh, it's, um, it consists of a no number of different components. So I define state failure as that condition that exists when a, when, a, when a unit of government, could be a municipality, could be a government department, could be the security cluster, whatever, but when a unit of government fails to interpret signals from its operational environment, that things are about to change and then turn those signals into a coherent response that is adequately resourced. And we've seen this playing out now in the water sector for the last uh, two decades. We've seen it playing out in the energy sector, and now we're seeing it playing out in the security cluster. So, so I would argue that South Africa is a failing state. And all things being equal, this is a profoundly disturbing set of circumstances. However, I said that I'm going to be optimistic. And I am optimistic because what I've seen in the, in the early part of July was when these forces collided, I saw the destruction of the myth of the impotence of the South African civil society. We have a vibrant civil society. Uh, attempts to reignite racial cleavage lines failed. Attempts to disrupt the supply chain failed. We managed to rapidly rebuild the supply chain in a very short period of time, notwithstanding the, the massive amount of looting and violence that took place. So we are an extremely vibrant society. And I think we've reset the conversation now. We've reset the national agenda where politics is now becoming less relevant and, 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 and our, uh, the propensity we had before as citizens was to look to government for all of our solutions. But I think that has now changed. Government's unable to supply those solutions. So what is needed? Where are we going in the future? We, I think we need a new approach and that new approach is emerging already. It's already in fact quite firmly embedded and it's firmly embedded in an entity called the Public Private Growth Initiative, the PPGI. I'm a founding member of the South African Business Water Chamber that was created as a direct response to the public-private uh, growth initiative, which was established by Toyota South Africa based on its experience, its deep experience at the end of World War II, where, uh, where as a company, it was able to reach out to the Japanese government to rebuild Japan after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, so the PPGI was created initially around the, the automotive sector, but it's now expanded outwards. And I've been engaging with the PPGI uh, and I've explained to them quite clearly that their vision of a 5% economic growth rate, which is a very ambitious ambition, but if you're going to have ambitious ambitions, then, then, then let's make them big ones, not small ones. Let's rather make it, you know, let's rather undershoot than overshoot. So the PPGI intention is to grow the economy by 5% for the next two decades. 
because that's what we need to create the economic employment opportunities simply to reach some kind of social stability in South Africa. So it's a very ambitious thing. But I explained to them uh, uh, in the first meeting I had with them that while I, I respect their vision, it would amount to nothing if they did not understand the concept that water is an economic enabler and the fact that in 2002 we became a fundamentally water constrained economy. So even if we were going to grow our economy by 5%, it's not physically possible in the, in the face of this resource constraint. So coming out of this now has been a vibrant conversation. The, uh, the SA Business Water Chamber, which I'm a founding member, is now deeply embedded in the PPGI discourse. We, we were cooperating closely with the presidency, working very, very closely with, the, uh, with Treasury, with the Development Bank of Southern Africa. And coming out of this is the emergence of a whole new business model. And that business model will start being implemented at municipal level where most of the state failure has occurred. And this is a business model that's, that's, that's based on the concept of a special purpose vehicle. Now, just to drill into the special purpose vehicle as an instrument, it's, it's important to understand this. The municipal space is, the, is defined by the Municipal Financial Managers Act, Management Act. And that act fails to hold any executive official legally accountable for their actions. Uh, does it, they, 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 they not um, accountable if they do something wrong. But it also fails to ring fence money that is set aside, for example, for infrastructure upgrade. Uh, they are unable to ring fence that money. So with this new special purpose vehicle, it's a legal instrument that's been designed by some of the best legal and financial brains in the country. And it's being approved by, 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 by Treasury and, and the Development Bank, et cetera, as an instrument that will now be dropped into municipalities because more than 60% of our municipalities are failing in some way or other. And none of them are able to, uh, to uh, mobilize the, ca the capital that is needed. In the case of the water sector, we need about 1 trillion rand. 1 trillion rand is needed just to fix what is broken. Not to upgrade, just to fix what's broken. And with the fiscal cliff being what it is, there's no way that, that, that the tax man can afford to pay for that. So we're either going to continue to fester and slowly, slowly succumb to this failed state scenario, or we're going to adopt this new model now with these SPVs. What the SPV does is it ring fences that capital that goes in. It makes it possible for private capital to now go into that space. But it also creates within the municipal structure a, a defendable... Uh, entity that has now got a long-term interest in, in, in delivering, for example, a service, whatever water service, you'll see the emergence of, of independent water, water service providers, much as you're seeing uh, uh, in the energy sector, where you get independent energy suppliers as well. The same type of thing is going to start happening there. And this is going to start looking ultimately, well, it, it, brings, it brings to the party um, a piece of the, uh, of the Companies Act. And the Companies Act now fills the gaps left by the Municipal Financial Management Act because it brings in the notion of fiduciary responsibility for executive decision makers. So if an executive decision maker makes, makes a mistake and, for example, steals money and in these SPVs, it's the commercial law that applies, not the municipal law that applies, and they then go to jail. They, they held accountable in their personal capacity. So basically, you're now getting people you know, with a vested interest in making this thing uh, deliver. So let me just move on to say that part of this vision is to understand that water is an economic enabler. We need one trillion rand uh, to recapitalize our water sector just to fix what's broken. And that's a lot of money. And there's no way that's going to come from the tax man. But that can come from the private sector if we re renegotiate the social contract. 
between the state and, 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 and private capital. If, if they're willing to renegotiate that, there's no shortage of capital and there's no shortage of technology that is willing to flow into the national economy. But in this case, we'll talk about the water sector as a proxy for the national economy. And if you take in any engineering parlance, um, what is known as a multiplier. So if you invest a million rand into a project uh, in an engineering sense, you always look at what the multiplier of that will be in terms of, of turning that money into something of, of, of greater value downstream. And the multiplier in this context is between three and five. So if it's managed properly, we can turn the one trillion rand that's going to be invested into the water sector into between three and five trillion rand now circulating in the economy, creating jobs, generating taxes with every transaction that is, that, that, that is unlocked. So that's, that's where we're going. And basically, because we are fundamentally water constrained, that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing, because we are only constrained in terms of the freshwater resources that we've now come to the limit of. We're not constrained in terms of the saltwater resources that we have. We've got a massive coastline. All of the all of the cities along the coast are fundamentally water constrained, but there's a there's a there's a massive resource you know right on the shore. So you're going to start seeing the emergence of desalination plants, uh, privately funded, uh, uh, with uh, with uh, with with a 20 to 20 to 30 year life cycle, which makes the unit cost of water uh, at least on a par with the the, the cost of water uh, supplied from a river. But the, the river water is not there anymore, so that the cost of that is going up. So that's that's where we're going, and all of this is only possible if we now have a reinstatement of the rule of law. And I think the optimist in me says now that the we've tested the waters in the first two weeks of July this year, and the average citizen in South Africa realizes the intrinsic value of the rule of law. They want it back. And once that rule of law is reinstated, you're going to find significant amounts of capital that are willing to come into, into the country and significant amounts of technology. But that's my closing statement. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Anthony. I think uh, a lot of food for thought there that you have brought uh, uh, into the discussion. I'm going to ask the panelists uh, to switch on their cameras so that uh, that we can start to 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 engage with the with the Q and A. Um, and I want to remind our, our audience uh, there is a Q and A box. Uh, please uh, uh, put your questions down so that we can bring that into the discussion. Uh, and, and there has been a couple of questions, but I, I think there could be more. I want to start off, and, and it's actually a question that that, that I'm going to pose to Bunang, but I'm pretty sure that all of the other panelists would also be able to come in. Um, in, 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 in the presentations by Quanita and Bunang, and, and, and in fact, it was also touched by Nakiwe and Anthony, uh, referring back to the events that took place in July, um, there were there were four things that that struck me out of what you said. Uh, the the one was the the whole issue of criminality that that came out during during those those uh, protests. The second one was amongst that there was also a desperate need for people, genuine people, that didn't have food, that capitalized on that. But that was a that was more desperation to be able to say that we we struggle. And we want to get food. Uh, uh, um, how can how how can we we get that during that during that period? The third one was the failure of of I would say the security cluster, but I wanted to expand it a little bit more to the failure, the general failure of the state. Uh, um, and the fourth one was the commitment to by the 
by the South African citizens to say that, you know, this is enough, we will come in and, 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 and we will also show our muscle to be able to say, well, if the state can't do it, we will, we will come to the fore. So those were the four things that I picked up in, in your combined discussion. Now, if we, if we say from where to from here, Bunang, um, I look at the, at the recent statistics that, that came out by SA statistics about unemployment rate. Uh, um, and in fact, it's worse than the Kiwi to, to what, you, what you referred to uh, uh, a few weeks back. And, 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 and the question is, how was all of these now uh, against the background of uh, um, criminality, uh, desperation by South Africans, how can we deal with the issue of unemployment? Because surely there's a link between unemployment, poverty, and inequality, and the link with criminality, and the desperation of people to get food. Uh, but the state necessarily also have to do something, but they aren't uh, uh, the way that they should. So I just wanted to get your view. I'm starting with, with, the, with the issue of, 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 of unemployment, but it obviously it will expand to, I want to bring Juanita and Nikiwe and Anthony also into that. I think you muted uh, uh, Benang, thank you. So, so Prof, for me, it's the causal effect of the stubbornly high levels of unemployment, which then lead to increasing levels of poverty and increasing levels of inequality. And it is relative inequality that leads to social action by the citizens. The numbers are absolutely frightening. We use a narrow definition of unemployment but the expanded definition is 43.2% because the 9% of the workers have just given up hope in the last 512 days of national lockdown. That's 11.7 million people that are not in employment. Pre-COVID business was employing 16 and a half million people all three layers of government, 2.3 million. We've lost 3.2 million jobs. We've created another 800,000. So net, net, we are 2.2 million jobs down. But I think what should scare us is the fact that only 30% of households have both parents, mother and father, as 6 million children who don't know their parents, who don't know their fathers, to be precise and 10 million young people who are not in employment, education, or training. So youth unemployment is 74.7%. This is clear and imminent danger. The elements that were present in Tunisia during the Arab Spring are here as we speak. Why Alexander has not gone up in flames, we can put it to the patience of our people. So, let me conclude, Prof, by saying I get a lot of hope, not in the main body of our constitution, in the preamble of our constitution. And to paraphrase, it says, we the people, not the politicians. It says recognizing the past injustices. It then implores and mandates you and I to fix these past injustices. 
and then it ends with the most incredible hymn by Enoch Sontonga, 1856, Nkosi Africa. So our forebears have given us this amazing gift. Kolisata Nelson Mandela hobbles together a flag and we stand under one flag and also one national anthem, the healing song. Together with the West of apartheid, distem. The last stanza take the English version of distem and it ends with the line that says, and we shall live and strive for freedom in South Africa, our land. Knowing that at best it's aspirational because when one look at farmland in private hands, the last land audit done in 2017 says 72% of that is still in white maids, 10% in so-called colored people, 5% in the so-called Indian people and only 4% in African hands. Let me stop there, Prof, for my colleagues uh, to add a bit of color. Yeah. So I want to, I want to thank you for, uh, for that, Bunang. I want to move to Quanita because following up of what I said and, and maybe emphasize a little bit more focus from a question from uh, Poloso, uh, which reads, with the current challenges in the leadership vacuum, including policy uncertainty, how far are we to crashing like countries such as Venezuela and Zimbabwe. I mean, it's 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 very tempting to to go down that route of uh, pessimism and say, you know, we 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 at the fringe of a of a of Venezuela, or or you know, we 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 are where where Zimbabwe is, you know, um, at the fringe of where Zimbabwe uh, is. But I I, I think that um, there are a few things that 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 I play here. Number one. Um, our the 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 supremacy the, the the fact that rule of law is still supreme the fact at the end of the day whatever you saw there's still a former president behind bars for me gives me that kind of optimism that we still have the bones or the foundation while while yes the house may have burned or is burning down um, I, uh, I I I still believe that there are pillars that still have some level of strength in them. That's the first, first part of it. The second part of it is we cannot underestimate um, the importance of, of ordinary people uh, uh, sort of taking a stance for this country. Now, I make the point that for a long time, we've outsourced the future of South Africa to some people called the ANC. Right, and and what that what has happened in that way is that we don't have a robust um, uh, or a healthy opposition in this last few years, which is problematic. Local government has completely decimated. Um, again, by leaving it to a group of a few people, thinking that despite them showing us over and over again that they will. Uh, uh, you know, completely uh, break the trust that we give them constantly, um, we keep on doing it. And I think that this provides us with an opportunity to change the way we, we look at politics. Um, and I know it's, you know, sometimes it, it has a sort of a kumbaya, you know, pie in the sky kind of, you know, we all need to be active citizens, but we really all need to be active citizens because if you say, we are, we are tinkering on a failed state, 
that means it directly affects each of us and each of us have to play a role in whether we become a failed state or not. And so I think that by us folding our hands and waiting for the people who've taken us to the fence of a failed state is going to just accelerate us getting there. And I think there is room for reversal. I don't think it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, Konita. Nakiwe, I, I want to come to you and, and, and you, you refer to the, 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 the quote of belong to each other. And I think it came through in your presentation. But, but when we have to, um, to get the ordinary South Africans together uh, uh, um, to say, but how can we live that out in the context of a political framework? Because, you know, we still have got, you, you say that we, we are first belong to one another and not necessarily to a political party, but we have got a political structure. And, and how, how, would, how do you see that interface to play out specifically if we have a failed state? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think in, in part, uh, we, we responded to that question in the interventions given by Ponita as well as Anthony Turton. What we saw in responses from the community on the ground in the affected areas was a show of strength and people understanding quite firmly that this is their country and that they were able to take ownership and make uh, decisions which are based on the common good. And I think if we, if we cultivate that sentiment, clearly it's there and it's strong. And the voice of civil society is quite strong. And I think what this rupture, this juncture has enabled us to look at quite sharply is that we are in fact quite capable of doing so. Not in the absence of a political structure, but in effect, reinforcing our own place in that, reinforcing our own voices. You know, there is a government in place, but also challenging whoever happens to be in power to be held to account in the ways in which we now know um, and the things that we have now defined as being quite important to us as a citizenry going forward. And I'd like to respond in part also uh, to points made by Bonang about this, the triple nexus of inequality and unemployment um, and rising poverty. We've known this to be the fundamental problem facing our society for a while now, but I want to challenge us again in that we know that there are things that can work, right? So for example, when we look at apartheid spatial planning um, with the figures which came out today on, on, on unemployment, the worst that we've ever seen, you know, it just keeps getting worse. We know that there's a housing and jobs mismatch in South Africa due to apartheid spatial planning. People live too far from where the work opportunities are. People have become discouraged, not only because they're not getting the work, but because it's too expensive for them to get to the places where the work opportunities might possibly be. We know this. So what are, how, how and in what ways can we respond to that? The, the issue around urban housing, social housing. So people must live where the opportunities are. But a far easier solution perhaps is around ensuring that the costs of public transport, which have risen exponentially over the past few years in contradiction to inflation, are reduced so that people who are seeking work are able to do so. 
Not only has it become more expensive, it's also, quite frankly, public uh, transport is not safe for many work seekers, particularly women. So these are some of the things which are, are quite practical and, and, and that we can begin to implement. Indeed, if, if, if the machines or the govern, governance was working, we could implement such things uh, fairly, I think, easily. Okay. The key way, I, I'm going to probe you a little bit further before I come to Anthony. Um, because I, I asked the question deliberately in terms deliberately because you could have communities that uh, um, that try to organize themselves in the absence of, of a, a, a coordinated state uh, framework, which can also create other challenges. Uh, um, so, so the question is, uh, um, if you take, for instance, our local government, uh, and we had a thought leadership discussion a few weeks, well, a couple of months ago, about the effectiveness uh, um, of local government or the ineffectiveness, should I rather say, of local government. And there is where I think the, um, um, the citizens are probably much closer to, to, to government. And that's not working. So uh, it, 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 it leads me to, to this particular question that uh, uh, Tabo, uh, not Tabo, uh, um, yeah, I think Tabo asked, uh, drawing from the theme of the discussion, where to from here, a question comes to mind with who are we who are we moving forward with? What I mean is, can we really rely on the same government that brought us in the situation to take us out of uh, uh, out of this out of this situation? So it, it is about that question. It probably come to you know vote with your feet. But I, I wanted to make that connection. You know, you could you could have this, the 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 our citizens try to, to 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 do whatever they need to do, but you need to have a framework of the state uh, that that could help us there. Are there any suggestions that you could make uh, um, in that regard, Nakiwe? I'm sort of probing you a little bit a little bit more there, and then I'll come to Anthony now with uh, with another question related to the private sector. All right, I'll seek to respond to the example you've made about local government and its proximity to, to the people. Mm. So regardless of whether it's local or provincial or, or national government, we have seen that people feel alienated by that government. This proximity created by um, the veneer of local government has simply not worked. But what I'm suggesting is that that failure does not necessarily extend to com the community itself mm -hmm not having reached out to its leaders. It's a lack of responsiveness that's, that's there. So we are seeing this groundswell of organization by people from the ground and community organization. What I think I'm suggesting is that, it, to, to refer to what Kalita said, is that you know, the, the alternatives in terms of the opposition, for example, has, has not been terribly exciting. I'm suggesting that the future of this country or that whatever that state formation would form would be built out of that community, that, that organizing around communities. Okay, That's all right. No, I think that, that, thank you. Thank you very much, Nikiwe. Um, Anthony, I want to, to come back to you and I know that Benang, you probably also want to like to comment on some of the earlier, you and Kunita, some of the earlier discussion that we had around this topic. Um, Anthony, you, in your discussion, you talk Quite a bit about the private sector, uh, um, and 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 what is it? What government needs to do uh, to be able to um, to to extract the value that the private sector actually can bring to the table? 
not only taxes uh, and, 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 and not only employment, as you have indicated, but much more than that. And, and, and what would you suggest one should be, one should be doing? Because surely uh, government is not, is not going to provide the growth that we need uh, uh, in the country. It has to come from the private sector and commerce. But, but, but I just wanted to get your, your views. What are the things that we need to do from here onwards? And is there a role uh, from other parts of the community to be able to foster that and to, to, to make sure it, it does happen? So thank you, thank you very much. Um, all over the world, whichever whichever country you look at, let's take it out of South Africa. Wherever you look, governments can really only do two things: they can regulate and they can incentivize. That's what governments do. They can regulate, apply the law, make sure that the, that the, that the playing field is, is level, and then they can incentivize. So let's start from that 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 point of departure. There are two numbers I want to put on the table just to show. What, what I think uh, is, is, is serious about our current situation. State capture removed approximately 25% of the GDP of the country, maybe more. Gone, offshore, gone, gone. So a quarter of the net wealth of the country has been stolen by state capture. But then there's another quarter of the net wealth that has been moved out of the country uh, uh, in terms of lost confidence, uh, uh, but particularly people who are concerned that the state's going to take their money, their savings, etc. So, so rats and mice, mom and pop kind of investors that have moved offshore. So that's 50% of the GDP of the country gone. Now, we can't have an honest conversation about, about the alleviation of poverty, the eradication, not, not the alleviation, the eradication of poverty uh, uh, without talking about about this thing, this investor confidence thing. Investors are neither good nor bad. They are just investors. And money is like water, it flows. And if there's no confidence, money flows to where there is higher confidence. And that's just the way the world works. Now you can, you can legislate that yourself into poverty, but ultimately that's the bottom line. So I would say that one of the important things you've got to start looking at now is, is, the, is, is the, the reinstatement of the rule of law, because that is what's going to start uh, at, uh, bringing back jobs. You can't create jobs if there's no respect of the rule of law. And, and, and in fact, uh, the central issue here from a private sector perspective is what is known as a justiciable right. If you have a right to something that is justiciable that you can defend, then, then you're willing to, to invest money. And I'll give an example from the water sector. When the National Water Act nationalized the water resource, what it did was it took away the justiciable right of an individual, for example, a company that had a, had, a, had, a, had a right to water and they were willing now to, uh, to invest large sums of money to expand their mill or their factory or their plant or whatever it is, okay? Suddenly now they no longer have that right and they've now got to reapply every five years so bureaucrats going to make a decision about whether or not they will get, get their water allocation. That is a fundamental impediment to the inflow of capital and I know that because when I was a fellow at the CSIR, at that point in time, the largest single foreign direct investment was going to come into South Africa in one of the big multinational corporations, and it was blocked simply because of this issue. That's the first time I realized, about 2007, the first time I realized that this issue is going to become, become very, very serious in, in, in future. So taking the optimistic view about what's happened now, I think we've now had a hard reset to look at the fact that the policies we've tried to apply for poverty eradication, et cetera, uh, social development, et cetera, et cetera, those policies, while well-intended, have in general failed. 
So now we've got, we're forced to hard reset those things. And it's not, not a question of constantly reapplying the same old broken policies, but it's now about, about, about reinvigorating those things, having a serious conversation now about what is the role of the private sector. And, I, and I'll just close by saying that in the water sector, the ingenuity in the water sector is not vested in the government part of the, of, of the water sector. It's invested in your private, uh, your private consulting engineering companies. Remember, South Africa was a leader in, 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 in water technology uh, until not so long ago. We've probably got about five, maybe 10% of the capacity that we had in 1994, we still have in South Africa today. All those big uh, 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 um, consulting companies have downscaled, moved offshore, simply because the investment environment here is so complicated, dealing with the state is so complicated, procurement is so complicated. So we've lost our capacity. And that's what the, what the, what the um, SA Business Water Chamber is now trying to do. We're trying to save that last 10%. And we're trying to not prevent further erosion of that capacity. Because once that's gone, then we've got nothing. Then we're going to become totally dependent now on foreign service providers. Uh, the Chinese are coming in very strongly in that space at the moment. And that's, I don't think, is in our, is in our best national interest. So, you know, that's my closing statement. Thank you very All much. Right. Thank you. And, and I want to bring, uh, bring Juanita in because we only got a few minutes left. And the question that I, that I thought I want to ask, uh, um, and, and, and I'm going to ask maybe each of the panelists if they want to respond to that, is to say that we are, uh, uh, we are an institution of higher learning and, 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 and there's a massive role that, that we as a, as, as a university and the university sector in South Africa, but also globally need to play to deal with these particular issues. Nakiwe have mentioned some of those. Um, what, what, what is from your perspective, some of the key things besides obviously producing graduates uh, uh, um, that we have to make sure is not becoming more unemployed, uh, but, but, but also have more say, entrepreneurial thinking and skills that can create their own jobs. But what could a university such as the University of Free State or any other university play in, in really add to the solutions of going forward? Yeah, I think the foremost is just uh, in, in, inculcating a culture of active citizenry. People must understand how things work so you know why things are not working. That's extremely important. The second, I think, um, is to not uh, divorce yourself from holistic transformation of society. And that needs to be uh, pivoted because this is one, one analogy that I always maintain. People who are corrupt use uh, uh, un un uh, um, transform spaces and racism to justify their corruption. The same way uh, racist people use corruption to justify their racism. So I think to building together society, both are ills in society. And I think that we all in the different places that we are can play that role uh, um, uh, quite seriously. And then the third thing I think um, is uh, just to, 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 to not give up on, on I think, the, the future of South Africa, and that can be by, by promoting innovation um, and, 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 and excellence, because that, I think, um, probably as the youngest panel member uh, who, um, uh, here, just, just to say that um, uh, we are, as cliche as it sounds, we are as good as um, we want to be. And, and if we all sit here and say, it's already down the drain, 
the future generation, my, my friends, my peers are going to face the brunt of it. It's not too late to say it's, it's, it's far gone. It, we can reverse it. And I think that um, uh, I hope the next session we have, I'm not proven to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Nakiwi any any comments on on that question before I move to the 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 the, the youngest uh, member of the panelists, Benang. Uh, um, Nakiwi. <laughs> Thank you so much, Prof. So I think the the role of of universities is going to be critical going forward. Um, one of my favorite quotes. I can't remember where it's from, but. It says, he who knows, why not share it? She who knows, why not share it? Mm -hmm. Information and knowledge generation, you're at the heart of that. And I think it's important for, for you to be places to disseminate this information, to illuminate, to simplify it so it reaches as many people as possible. Universities should not be ivory towers, should not be places of elitism and should not be exclusionary. So the information that you have, the research that you generate should be disseminated for the benefit of South Africa so that people understand. And, and, and I'd like to move the conversation as I've been trying throughout, uh, throughout um, this intervention is that Yes, it's all well and good to say, woe is us and we're at a terrible place. But I'd really like for that information, what we have to move towards deliberative uh, solutions, however small are those interventions yeah. will be, as I've described. But I think it is quite possible and, and, and not to be cheesy, but it is in our hands, as Madiba would say, for us to build the, the viable society um, that we all want for all of us. All right. Uh, thank you, Erin. Bunang, you got your, the last the last word, and then I'll 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 just sort of summarise in half a minute. So, Prof, I think we need to bring about this notion of an inclusive academic excellence, so that when we value things like academic freedom, that all of us feel needed and wanted, but also public ownership of universities so that when a young lady from Limpopo who comes into the graduation hall of the University of the Free State doesn't look lost, let alone it looking outrightly hostile. Lastly, this notion of social justice. There's an African adage that says, sons learn by looking at the back of the heads of their fathers. Therefore, a child who's not enveloped by his village will burn it down in order to feel its warmth. Thanks, Prof. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to say thank you very much to the panelists. It's clear that uh, we have all of these challenges uh, and we recognize that. I think the events uh, um, the last months have demonstrated just what the fault lines are, uh, um, um, what, are the, what are the issues of poverty, inequality, and what it can resolve into. Uh, but the question is, how do we take it from there? I think there's a, there's a very optimistic uh, view, uh, I, I, if, I can, if I can summarize all of the panelists. Uh, um, but it's a view that, that, is, that is around the, uh, um, the, 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 the utilization of all our citizens, to be able to say that, if we talk about the future, you're part of that future, but you're also going to work towards that. And I think what has been showed is that that demonstration, that collection of those citizens can make a change. And it is up to us, together with all of the bodies, uh, institutions of higher learning, 
NOS and NGOs foundations to work together in a collaborative way to be able to deal and to look for solutions. I think that's the point. We're going to look for solutions uh, and not always go back and say, well, what was the what were the reasons? We know exactly what what those are, and it's now action from here onwards. Panelists, uh, uh, um, Juanita Hunter, Nakuiwe Bikitsa, Anthony Turton, Bunang Muale, thank you very much for a fantastic uh, debate, uh, a discussion, and 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 I also look at the audience for the questions that you've put through. I didn't go through all of the questions because some of the questions, we, the essence are we just put together and, 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 and brought that across to the panelists. But thank you for your participation. And I would like all of you to watch out uh, for our next uh, Thought Leadership webinar, where we're gonna tackle these particular issues that hopefully will make a change uh, in South Africa. So all the panelists, uh, I would like to say thank you very much indeed. Have a great afternoon. Keep well and keep safe. Thank you.